Welcome to Excess Returns, where we focus on what works over the long term in the markets. Join us as we talk about the strategies and tactics that can help you become a better long-term investor. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital. Hi guys, this is Justin. In this episode of Excess Returns, Jack and I sit down with James St. Aubin, CIO of Sierra Mutual Funds, discuss the firm's conservative approach to investing. From defining conservative to how they handle risk and manage market losses, to the use of moving average bands on their buy-sell decisions and much more. The firm has a long-term track record of managing capital effectively through difficult market environments, and we talked to James about that and the importance of educating investors along the way. As always, thank you for listening. Please enjoy this discussion with Sierra Mutual Funds' James St. Aubin. James, thank you very much for joining us today. Hey guys, it's great to be here. We're going to talk about your investing approach and how you go about building portfolios at Sierra Investment Management, and I think a lot of other things related to the markets and your investing process, and just you know how you view um, generating and compounding wealth for your investors over time. Um, but before we get into that, I wanted to ask you about something about your background that um, I personally find interesting. I know our audience will find interesting. We've had actually some other guests that have spent um, most of their careers or actually built some businesses around uh, assessing and doing due diligence on investment managers. And that was something that uh, you did for a number of years uh, prior in your career. And I just wanted to ask you, like, when you think back on that, you think back to the managers that you evaluated that were most successful. I mean, what were the most important things that you were looking for and that you found in, in in those managers? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. That's been a very important part of my background, and it's it's very much still part of my uh, day-to-day uh, uh, operation at Sierra. But yeah, just to give you some perspective, uh, you know, what, what do I look for generally? I think the performance is obviously an important key. Generally, when you talk about manager research, you're looking at the three Ps, and I'll oversimplify it a little bit. But, you know, I, I think it's important when you're looking at performance to uh, adjust for risk. So, I usually compare managers of similar asset classes by sharp ratios, or information ratios, Sertino ratios, NPT stats, so beta adjusted alpha. I think that's a really important first step. And then once you start to identify or screen through a few managers, you're going to look for the attribution analysis and understand what has led to these drivers of return and risk. And so I really focus on attribution as part of the initial stage of screening managers before we even start to have a conversation. And I think that's helpful to really get a good dialogue going with the manager. Then you want to look at process and philosophy. What I'm trying to understand there is what inefficiency a manager is trying to exploit. Well, why does the mispricing exist in a particular security? Um, So that that is an important question. And then obviously how to continuously execute and take advantage of that mispricing uh, falls in the process, and we want to really make sure it's a repeatable process uh, that could stand the test of time. Uh, and then on the people front, I mean, this is really where the rubber meets the road, right? You're, you're investing in a non-tangible product. You, you're investing with the uh, the investment team, and to that degree, you want to understand the background of the investment professionals uh, and the firm itself, so it's really a combination of those two things. Um, <clears throat> Really what's important to me, I thought, you know, and there's, there's been some academic studies about this in terms of managers that have money in their portfolios, so skin in the game. So that, that's 
some uh, something I look for in a manager. Obviously, you don't want a manager that's seen high turnover on the investment team, even at the junior ranks. But when, once a manager uh, turn, turnover happens on a lead PM manager, you really can't count on that uh, track record as much anymore. So really important to show stability and uh, also the alignment of incentives. And so incentives are really important to make sure uh, the investment team is tied to the performance of the products that they're managing. So we always look for that. Um, I would say just an overarching thing with uh, manager research is some quality that I look for when when talking to investment managers is is humility. Um, So I really like managers that acknowledge their mistakes and explain what they might have learned from those mistakes. Uh, So I always think of humility as a very important uh, quality of a successful investment manager. On the flip side of that, hubris would be a sort of a big red flag for me. No, that's great. Thank you. I think that uh, all that seems to make a lot of sense. Um, and it's, it's funny. I just saw a headline yesterday. It was one of the big gatekeeper, like the, I don't know who it was specifically, but one of the big firms that builds investment strategies that then advisors use, you know, there's been a lot of turnover in the growth, like growth manager, growth strategy space and how they were talking about how the loss or the transition of those managers or investment advisors and managers out of those teams, you know, that has resulted in them having to go out to the market and look for other growth strategies. Because when they lose like the top portfolio manager, you know, it's like, okay, well that investment process or philosophy to some extent, you know, goes out the door with that person. So that can be a big deal for many firms, I think. Yeah, I just say that depends on the strategy. Obviously a Mm -hmm. quantitative strategy might not be as important, but Generally speaking, the, the times that we've had to fire managers, it wasn't really a performance-related issue. It was more of a, uh, a manager turnover. That tends to be, in, in manager research, a more common um, reason to, to terminate a manager than, than, say, a performing period over three years underperforming. Kind of pivoting a little bit to the markets here, um, you know, we have kind of a lot of cross-currents, I guess, in the markets today. You have inflation that's coming down, obviously a big question about what the Federal Reserve is going to do, how much higher or maybe how longer they're going to stay at these higher levels with rates. Obviously, there was kind of talk of a recession earlier in the year that's to some extent come off the table. I mean, I'm not looking for like macro forecasts because I know that, you know, that's not really what you guys are all about. But I'm just wondering, like, you know, when you guys look at the market in the current situation, you know, how do you think about these things in terms of your own investment process? Yeah, the, we, we don't ignore the macro backdrop, and it does come in at the margins in our process. But let me just give you a, sort of broad strokes of what we see right now. And I think you kind of hit it on the head there, crosswinds, right? There's, I, I think as I look at the current economic debt, it, it's kind of like a Rorschach test. You know, you just do the ink blot, you see what you want to see. Uh, and there's plenty of conflicting signals, I would say. You know, if you look at the inverted yield curve, the uh, falling leading economic indicators, rising delinquencies and defaults, those are not very good signs. On the other side of the equation, you have the Atlanta Fed GDP now cast uh, expecting over 5% GDP for the third quarter. It's really, really hard to reconcile those things. Uh, It doesn't really make a lot of sense and very counterintuitive uh, resiliency, I would say, given what we see uh, from a a tighter monetary, significantly tighter monetary policy than we saw um, only 18 months ago. Um, but I, I do think what explains a lot of that is this distortions that are still in place from the pandemic. We really don't have a corollary here. And so it makes forecasting uh, for anyone, whether it be the Fed or, or asset managers or, or economists, very difficult. Um, so I think that 
analogy that that Powell gave about cloudy skies was really, uh, I think, illuminating to, you know, and, and very humble that we don't really know where things are going. So, you know, we just have to play it by ear from here. But I would say certainly the risk asset uh, resiliency has been a surprise to many, including us, frankly. Um, but, you know, what's interesting is that you're, you're starting to feel this, this uh, chorus of this time it's different. Uh, getting a bit louder. Remember, John Templeton said those were the four most dangerous world in investing. But I, I would also caveat that by saying it's not completely without merit, because like I said, the, the pandemic uh, distortions are kind of unusual, and we don't really know how those are going to play out. But I will say that I don't think it's time to let your guard down. Um, <clears throat> I don't think we can dismiss the chance of a recession over the next year. I know those uh, economists are starting to revise their probability for recession downward a little bit. Uh, different strategists, different different firms are doing that. Um, but I do think that if we have a recession, there's plenty of downside risk for equities and credit spreads at, at these current valuation levels, which are seemingly very uh, frothy at the moment and certain, certainly in places in the market. Um, and uh, so I, I think about like what could go wrong and uh, what, what really stays at the top of my mind is the fact that, you know, consumer balance sheets and income statement, they look pretty good right now. But, um, you know, we're, we're getting into a period in the fourth quarter here that where things can get a little bit dicey. And I, and I mean that because you look at the estimates of excess savings uh, that, are in, that are still on consumer balance sheets are starting to dwindle. So that will put a sort of a pinch on spending. You also have student loan forbearance uh, that is coming to an end this month. And so folks will start to have to take money they otherwise might spend in, you know, for discretionary purchases and, and to service their student loan debt. And that's not an insignificant amount. So I think those two things will start to pinch uh, in the fourth quarter. Will that necessarily send us into a recession? I don't know. Um, but you know, I, I would say like certainly if you've, if you've traveled recently or you've gone to a restaurant or a concert, uh, it would be hard-pressed to say we see any signs of a, a recession right now. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like I've, I've tended to use, like in my career, overuse the idea that we have an above average level of uncertainty right now. It feels like I'm always saying we have too much uncertainty, but I think right now it's actually true. Like we, we do seem to have a very above average level of uncertainty right now, given, you know, we had this big spike in inflation. It's come down some, like it's, it's very questionable as to where we go from here. You know, it seems like it just shows how tough this forecasting stuff is. Yeah, I, I think generally it's hard, but we're, because of the lack of precedent in this cycle, the, the, the distortions with pandemic related stimulus, supply disruptions, uh, it, it's really hard uh, to, to get a gauge and a vector on where things are headed. Like I said, you just got, you've got so many conflicting signals that are uh, just miles apart and you can't, how do, how do you reconcile those right now? It's, I, I don't know, it's not an easy thing to do. I want to shift and ask you about your investment strategy because I know it's here, you guys follow conservative strategies. And you know, when you talk to managers, you, you see a lot of different things behind that word conservative. You know, you, when, you, when you see the word conservative use, you can see a lot of different things behind the scenes in terms of the actual strategies being deployed. And so I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you define conservative when you think about your investment strategies. Well, first of all, I think we're known for being a conservative uh, strategy or having conservative strategies or allocation uh, portfolios that are geared toward conservative investors, but that's, that's changing. We, do, we are uh, moving out the risk spectrum with, with uh, portfolios that have more uh, equity exposure. Uh, but certainly our bread and butter was, and I know you've spoken to our founder, Dave Wright, in the past, who explained how he uh, founded the firm and, and really looked for uh, sort of a practitioner's view on, on what he felt his constituent of clients was looking for. And he was, they were really targeting retirees uh, but you mentioned something that 
is really important, which is that the term conservative is very subjective. Um, it's generally defined as the lowest uh, volatility portfolio on the risk spectrum. But is that is that cash or bonds or maybe bonds with a small allocation of stocks? I think that's um, you know that that's hard to pinpoint there. For again, very subjective. But you know, going back to the founders' approach, they said they were asking clients, "What what do you feel the most?" And it's the drawdowns, you know, peak to trough drawdowns, where they open their statement and feel see the decline in their portfolio values. So what their view was that that they felt the clients would be able to tolerate a 5% uh, drawdown per calendar quarter net of fees. Um, so our objectives for our conservative allocation strategy were set to meet those objectives and have successfully achieved that uh, objective in every one of the quarters since its inception, save one um, by a slight margin. So to us, it's, it's defined by the amount of drawdown in the per calendar quarter. But um, I, I would say, you know, again, it's, uh, it, it can be different, uh, different levels of risk for different people. And in terms of getting there, I mean, how do you think about constructing portfolios that have those minimal types of drawdowns? I mean, I would think multiple <laughs> asset classes might help there. I mean, obviously, certain trend rules would probably help. Like, how, how do you think about getting there? Uh, so each of our funds, and we have uh, seven mutual funds right now, they have a unique mandate. Um, <clears throat> some focus on individual asset classes. Others are uh, multi-asset class portfolios. And okay, we will put those together in sort of a package of uh, funds or portfolio funds for advisors. Um, and you know, our core income, for instance, is a multi-sector bond fund uh, that limits its exposure primarily to bond asset classes. And you contrast that with our, our multi-asset fund that really tries to blend exposure with equities and fixed income. And so our risk spectrum series goes from uh, a 30, 50, and 70, meaning the, the equity exposure is, for example, our risk spectrum 50 fund is going to be between 30 to 50% equity over time. Uh, over a three-year period. So each one of these portfolios is sort of custom and has its own purpose. Um, <clears throat> what we do to manage risk, uh, most importantly, is uh, adhere to our sell-stop discipline. Uh, and that uh, our trailing stop discipline allows us to exit a position if it begins to fall and, we, and that signals a potential downtrend is in place. Um, so regardless of how we're managing the portfolio, whether it's multi-asset, single-asset, we're always trying to manage risk uh, through that self, uh, trailing stop discipline. Uh, <clears throat> we also, of course, try to harness the benefit of diversification when we're um, adding positions to the portfolio. But we believe that uh, diversification alone generally isn't a sufficient uh, tool. And I think we learned that uh, the hard way last year in 22 when both stocks and bonds were in significant drawdowns. So are you diversifying you know, within asset classes as well? So inside of an asset class, are you looking at a series of funds and applying your trend you know, criteria to that? Exactly. Um, so in our diversified multi-asset funds, we have a broad spectrum, global equities, global fixed income uh, range of funds that we can invest in. In our tactical bond fund, for example, that's really focused on high yield exposure. So it's looking for high yield bond exposure. It can invest in treasuries, uh, treasury bond funds when we don't have uh, <clears throat> buy signals in high yield, or it can invest in cash when we have uh, neither buy signals in, uh, in uh, high yield or treasuries. So Again, there are subtle differences between the funds, but they all apply that that uh, trailing stop discipline. In, in researching you guys, you had you had a great statement on your website that I could probably do a lot better with in my own uh, investing, which is this idea of focusing on what can be controlled. And, and I'm wondering, how do you think about that at a high level? Like, how do you think about separating the things you can control in investing from the things you can't control? Yeah, I guess the way to simply say that is what we can't control is what the market's returns will offer you. 
right? The markets will give you what they give you. Uh, what we can control is the risk we're going to get uh, for that. We're going to pay for that return. I always call risk the price of return, and our job is to get you to pay as little uh, for that return that the market is offering as possible and to limit those big left tail events. So we can control that with our process, what the markets are going to do uh, over the long term in terms of what they deliver in returns. You know, that, that's really out of our control. It's out of anyone's control. Um, so we, we can just manage risk. I think, you know, Ben Graham said it best. That the the um, essence of investment management is the management of risk, not the management of return. Yeah, you know, that's definitely true in terms of the way, you know, investors feel things. You know, investors feel those, you know, those losses a lot more than gains. So, you know, certainly managing risk is, is an essential part of, you know, managing any portfolio. Exactly. And I just I think a lot of people take more of a passive approach to risk management in some cases with diversification being the cornerstone of most um, risk management uh, strategies. And, I, and our view is that, that that may be insufficient for some clients that uh, have the propensity maybe to get a little nervous when, when things get uh, get rough. And we know that correlation is, is, is a great thing to take advantage of, but it's not always not always there. You know, in, in periods of stress, correlations tend to rise, especially among risk assets. Last year, we saw bonds and stocks fall at the same time. So that non-correlation or negative correlation that we expected to be there isn't there. You know, the statistical term for that is non-stationary. <laughs> and uh, I think it's respecting that. And I've been in an asset allocation uh, pr uh, practitioner for the entirety of my career. And I can tell you that you know, I, I believe in mean variance optimization. I believe that it is a foundation for and a starting point uh, for portfolio construction. But if that's your only op, if that's your only risk management tool, I think it's going to be insufficient for some of your some investors. I want to dig into your process, as, as you probably know, since you said before we started recording, you've listened to some excess returns episodes. We're kind of quant nerds over here, mm -hmm. uh, so so we love digging into like the the details behind these processes. And, and you right. know, from looking at your website, I mean, you know, some people who implement trend following strategies have very simple rules. You know, it's with the two hundred. If we're below the two hundred day, we sell. If we're back above, we buy, or something like that. And yours is much much more detailed than that. So I'm wondering if you could just talk at a high level, maybe about the types of criteria you use with your trend following process. Sure. Yeah, there are many ways to identify trends, and moving average crossovers is one of them. Uh, we, you know, Dave and, and his partner, uh, Ken, Dr. Ken Sleeper, over 35 years ago, studied ways to achieve the objectives we just talked about. And what they found, you know, they looked at a lot of different strategies. They weren't bound to any particular uh, method of identifying trends or, or, or charting or whatever. They were very um, open-minded. And what after many years of research, they, they settled on this idea of, of banded moving averages. So banded moving averages are bands around uh, the price, in our case, of a fund. So that And those will be based on a short-term moving average and become proportional to uh, the um, volatility of the fund. So a, a higher volatility fund will have wider bands than a, than a lower volatility fund. And what, ha what our signals, in order to trigger a sell signal, by our um, definition, the fund's price has to fall below the recent high of the lower band. And to trigger a buy signal, it has to pass the lower end of the upper band and also cross a, uh, a, a longer-term exponential moving average. And so, and this is very uh, much in detail. I think one of the great things about Sierra is that we're extremely transparent. We don't give you every single detail, but if you look at uh, what I just said, might not be uh, clear in some people's head. 
So if you go to sierramutualfunds.com, uh, you can see an example, a chart that would give you some uh, illustration of what I what I just uh, discussed. Um, so that those that's how we identify trends. It's it's a um, banded moving average with a, an extra moving average uh, on top of that for the buy signal. And what do you think some of the advantages you get with that approach versus you know a more traditional straight like 200 day average or something like that? Like what are some of the advantages of having the bands around the assets? Well, it's just. I, I, First of all, we, we don't want to get too crazy with, with turnover and turn the portfolio over a lot and incur transaction costs and things like that. So I think it's it's more robust when it comes to uh, turnover, you know, limiting turnover. That's one sort of objective uh, there. We try to limit our turnover to maybe twice a year. So most of the time we want to be invested. Um, you know, as far as I'm sure you can come up with a very similar, you know, uh, successful results with trend following using simple moving averages or exponential moving average crossovers and things like that. Um, it's just when, the, when, when they did the research 35 years ago, it turned out to be, you know, the, the right mix of risk and return. Um, and obviously when you're, when you're a trend follower, one of the things you have to be sensitive to is uh, whipsaws. So you don't want to, you know, get false alarms, if you will. And sometimes those moving averages uh, that crossovers can lead you to more false alarms than you, you really are hoping for. Yeah, to your point, I mean, we've studied trend following, you know, with simple systems. I mean, that, that is the big, you know, drawdown, or the big issue of them is you will see these constant back and forth. You know, you'll have a lot of, and a lot of those will be losing trades. You know, at least if we look at the long-term return profile of trend following in general, you know, you have a lot of these small losses and then you have massive you know, gains when, when they get a, a big trend, right? Like 2008 or something like that. So it's, it's interesting, you know, the, the bands might do something to reduce some of that churn, you know, in the intermediate term. Yeah, that, that I, I think that's, you know, you made a great point there. We, what we try to do is not come at it with a view that there's a one way to do it, but when we try to put the objectives together and look at the, that trend signal and what, what sort of fits and meets the objectives that we found bad and moving averages being uh, a little bit more uh, robust. Now we still get false alarms. You know, we still are subject to sell signals that don't, you know, the price doesn't decline a lot further and they, we end up buying back uh, at a higher price. And so that, that's a miss. Um, and that's the cost of sort of the price of admission, right? You don't, uh, those false alarms do cost you uh, in the short term, but over the long term, the, the, you know, we get, we, that happens about a third of the time and the times we do get it right, um, it saves a lot of pain and anguish for our clients. So, uh, and, and it allows us to perform uh, well. So I think, you know, what we're trying to do is balance that risk. One of the interesting things I saw on your website is, is the idea that you look at sell signals as mandates, but you don't necessarily look at buy signals as 100% mandates. And I'm wondering if you could talk about that a little bit. Yeah, sure. Yeah, so sell signals, you know, in order to eliminate the potential for additional loss for further decline in the value of that, that holding, we sell the fund and there's no questions asked. Now, when we have cash in our portfolio and we see buy signals, oftentimes we get multiple buy signals. And so uh, it may be in a single asset class or, or a variety of asset classes. So we don't have to buy all of those funds. We can choose based on things like strength of trend. Um, may, maybe we have a small, you know, I mentioned where the discretion might come in. We might have a, a view uh, that, you know, if we have two buy signals and you know, there's different dynamics in those markets. We may look at one versus the other, but I think primarily we're really quantitatively informed uh, and, and allowing ourselves to choose between multiple buy signals. So we don't have to just buy everything that shows a buy signal. We monitor about right now 700 funds and mutual funds and ETFs. 
And so we're picking from a pretty broad universe, and you can imagine we get, you know, when we do see buy signals, they, they span a broad array of funds, a particular asset class. So we, you know, we, we can be selective on the buy side. And how do you think, so in, inside of each individual asset class, you've got a series of funds that you're running this criteria against. Like in terms of multi-asset portfolios, how do you think about the allocation between the asset classes? You know, how, how is that determined? Well, usually when we're in cash, um, it, it's sort of a byproduct of, again, the strength of trend. We try to, you know, stay within, and I'll give you just, you know, an example of our risk spectrum 50 fund. We want to be, when we see buy signals and equities, we want to be um, <clears throat> at the average or maybe toward the upper end of the average uh, of equity exposure. So we're sort of, that, that's one guidepost for us. So that equity bucket we want to fill in order to meet the objective of that portfolio, an average between 30 and 50 percent equity over a three-year cycle. So we're trying to sort of got a mandate there to fill that equity bucket. But within equities or within fixed income, when we have multiple asset classes that are flashing buy signals, whether it's within an asset class or across asset classes, we're looking at the strength of the trend um, off the bottom, so on a risk-adjusted basis. So it's not just purely which, which one's doing better. It's the one, and you can kind of think of that as a form of momentum. And so we're looking at a risk-adjusted return. It could consider like a sharp ratio, uh, and and which one, whichever one is giving us this the stronger um, uh, signal that we would gravitate toward toward that uh, asset class or that fund. I want to ask you a couple more before I hand it back to Justin. And both of them are kind of selfish, and that these are things I struggle with in investing that I'm trying to you know figure out how to how to get better at. And you know, one is this idea of discretionary versus quantitative management. And, and I'm wondering like. At what point in your process, I mean, do, do you follow quantitative rules 100%? I mean, I know at certain times you're making some decisions. So how do you think about that balance between when, you know, discretionary management is appropriate and when you want to follow a completely quantitative process? Sure. I mean, there's uh, obviously we're primarily quantitative or quantitative, I guess say quantitatively informed. So we're not an algorithm. Obviously, our buy and sell signals are, are not purely, you know, completely non-subjective and, and driven by an algorithm. But then, obviously, we have some discretion around, like I, we just talked about, about which ones we might choose when multiple buy signals appear. Our, our general view is that picking, you know, making discretionary calls is highly unreliable uh, for for most people, uh, and and this is this is, you know, something that Dave and and Ken, the founders, came to that conclusion. A long time ago, they said, look, there are definitely people that make great calls. There just aren't many people that make great calls repeatedly. Um, and so we, we respect our <clears throat> the, what we don't know and what we can't know. And so we're really focused almost all the time about just following the rules and looking, letting, the <clears throat> letting the trends, the buy signals, and uh, the strength of those signals lead us to the direction. Now, if there's a very close call between two asset classes that may have similar uh, profiles in terms of uh, trends, we may impart some marginal uh, you know, uh, tactical uh, discretionary ideas. You know, maybe I'm a little bit worried about, and, and I'm just using as a very um, uh, non-specific example, but if we said high yield versus bank loans and, and look at you know, some, of the, some of the dynamics there and what, you know, think about the macro side of this, the equation, what, what might, you know, where might the risk be that isn't necessarily um, reflected in the price? That's something where we can, um, you know, impart a little bit of discretionary judgment, but we try to keep that to an absolute minimum because we just know that 
frankly, we're that's not our cup of tea. Um, some people have done it successfully. I think, um, you know, I think back to my uh, early days in my career when I was watching, started watching CNBC, and this was in the mid '90s, and, and I'll never forget this. They would they would bring on this is maybe 96, 95, they would bring on somebody that made the call for the 87 crash that was now calling for the same crash. But this was 1996. Obviously, the market went quite a bit farther after that. Um, but, you know, it, it just it, it reinforced for me early on that those, you know, that micro call may become once in a while. Uh, it, but it's hard to really get it right consistently. So, again, that's why we try to say, Hey, let's step back here and say, let's acknowledge, getting back to that humility part that I was talking about earlier, let's acknowledge what we don't know and what we can't know. And I know everybody, when you're talking to clients, you want to have narratives. You want to have like a story to give them and, and, a, and a view because it makes them feel better. But in reality, you, you know, you're, you can't, like if we take our, what we talked about earlier in terms of the, uh, the backdrop of, of what's going on in the economy and financial markets, I don't know how anybody can have a high conviction view right now, you know. It, it, like we, it, so, so that's why I think it's we just stick to our rules and we'll be okay. And it, if we try to deviate from that, I think we'll run in, run into some problems. Yeah, and you know, to, to your point, I mean, high, high conviction views in general are pretty dangerous in investing. You know, if, you know, we're on Twitter a lot, um, and you know, you'll see a lot of high conviction views about you know inflation's going way higher, or we're about to have a recession, and. You know, it's very easy to they say, they say them with so much conviction that it's very easy to believe them. But it's always right. important to take a step back and realize, like, is this thing I'm talking about, is it really predictable? You know, does the to your point about people who have predicted bear markets, does this person have a track record of actually predicting this thing in the past? And, you know, typically when you when you go into those details, it all falls down. Yeah, no, nobody wants to hear this might happen or this this could happen. They want to say this will happen. So instead of like thinking in reality, probabilistically, which is really the reality the outcomes are uncertain they think deterministically and th that's in my view a recipe for disaster because you know th there might be a probability of that outcome happening but it does certainly not guaranteed but that's yet yeah, that's the way we we think or we talk to investors or a lot of the folks out there say absolutely this will happen and you know maybe they're right and then they look like a genius for a minute and then after that uh, things don't uh, you know, they can never seem to repeat the same success. So, and we, of course, only hear, you know, most notably, we pay attention to the ones that were right, and we forget about the ones that didn't didn't go so well. Yeah, and the other thing that struck me about your answer was this difference between systematic and quantitative. And this is something I've kind of been drilling into myself recently, is this idea that you can have a very systematic process that includes discretion in it. And it sounds like that's what you have there. Like, you know, I, I early in my career would think, well, you, you can't be, you know, you can't have a systematic process unless you're running it quantitatively. But as long as you're following, you know, a repeatable process, you know, you can certainly have elements of both discretion and quantitative, you know, analysis in a process. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's that's well said. Um, just one more thing I want to ask you before we switch back to uh, to Justin. I wanted to ask you about one of the things I struggle with a lot is. You know, you guys obviously have a, a pretty systematic quantitative process here. We do as well. And like one of the things I struggle with is what do I do when it's not working? And it seems like you guys have, you know, followed the similar process over a very long period of time and it's continued to work. But like I struggle with how to think about like when you have these short periods where it's not working, how do I think about has something changed in the market where something I have to make some adjustments around the edges in this process? Or is this just something that these are, this is one of these periods it doesn't work and I've got to sit through it because that's true of every process. And I'm just wondering if you have any thoughts on that, like any advice you have around that. Yeah, I think you just talked about 
the dilemma of manager research in general. Like if you're, whether it's your own strategy or looking at someone else's strategy, like when do I give up on this? Um, yeah, the, the value, I think the benefit of our process right now is that it has 35 years. It was you know, developed in the mid 80s and has a long track record. Uh, and we, we've seen great times and not so great times. And anyone that is in investing, buying funds or managers, you know, has to be able to put up, active managers in particular, has to put up with the inevitable periods of underperformance or you know, subpar performance. You know, it, it, it's really hard to say, okay, maybe you know, if you've given up on value, for instance, value's been underperforming for you know a considerable period of time. It's had a little day in the sun last year, but for the most part, it's been pretty pretty difficult place to be, despite a lot of research that suggests that it is a, a factor that adds value over time. Um, you know, I, it's a difficult question. I wish I had a perfect answer for you, but um, I think you look at it from a, a you know, if, especially if you're looking at it from a factor perspective and a systematic strategy, it, it it's hard to say. Well, that you know, the portfolio manager lost his fastball or her fastball. You know, that that you really can't make that determination. You've got to believe in the um, the underlying uh, sort of inefficiency or or the underlying intent of the strategy that it will. You know, for us, obviously, we're going to look uh, not so great when things are going really well. We might be underperforming in up markets, but we should outperform in down markets. And what when I, what I should have said earlier when you asked me about manager research is that what, what typically was the biggest red flag for me in a performance uh, scenario was when um, something didn't work when it should have or vice versa. So, you know, if, if we were to dramatically underperform in a down market, as a defensive manager, that would be something you should take note of and, and start to really question. But, you know, if, if a manager who's, likewise, if a very manager that's very growth oriented underperformed when growth was in favor, you'd have to start to ask some questions about that. But if the markets aren't giving you what, what the strategy needs in order to succeed, you can't really, that, that's sort of not out of the control um, of the manager. So I wouldn't penalize them for that necessarily. I was once at an investment conference and somebody was talking about back tests. He said, if you're ever in front of a manager and they put a back test in front of you and the back test has no underperforming years, the response to that person should be, well, you need to back test it further then because you know, no investment strategy works all the time. So the point is, if you see something like that, you probably want to want to head for the hills. Yeah, you have to take a skeptical eye with back tests. And I like to say, I've never seen a bad back test. Right. But that, that's guaranteed. You're never going to see one. Um, I'm sure there are many bad back tests. They just never get see the light of day. So, you know, yeah, you have to be very skeptical when it comes to back tests. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of opportunity to data mine things. And, yeah, we've seen those things um, go bad frequently. You hit on something before that I think is important to just flush out a little bit. And that's with all these types of, with any type of investment strategy, but with yours in particular, you know, you're making these portfolio decisions and they're buy-sell decisions and there's some type of hit rate. There's some type of percentage that you're getting right and you're getting wrong. You know, you can never have a portfolio if you're allocating to, I don't know what your average fund, how many different funds it's holding at one point in time, but you know, you might be batting, and I don't know, you tell me, like maybe it's a 50 to 60% win rate on those positions. So there's some portion that, you know, probably is not 
profitable, I would imagine, at the portfolio level. And I think that's sometimes hard for investors to understand. Like with our types of strategies, when we buy, I don't know, 50 securities, you know, we know based on our own historical information that we're only we're basically getting 50 percent of those, you know, somewhere in there, 50 to 55 percent of those right um, over time. And that's I don't know. I just feel like investors sort of can't grasp that or don't understand it, that when you're buying a basket of whatever you're buying, there's going to be losers in there. You're not going to be batting 90 percent or anything like that. It's just the way investing works. Yeah, I, I call that the price of admission. And when, when you're doing due diligence on any strategy, you should know what that is and in terms of the, the error rate. And not only just the error rate. So if you get – you could get 30 percent right. But if the magnitude is large right. enough, mm-hmm. that can overwhelm the 70 percent you got wrong because the magnitude is smaller. So you can't just look at it as the you know how many how many stocks outperform, but it's also a question of magnitude. Um, and and for us, you know, when we get things right, um, the magnitude can be really significant. We can miss a big left tail event in any asset class. Now there will be events that come along where we shouldn't have sold, you know, and that that was a you know I wouldn't call it a mistake, but that didn't work out. But in order, that's what that's the price of admission. Like I mentioned earlier, I have to buy in at a higher price than we sold the fund at, and that's not a good feeling, and it certainly doesn't sound great. But there's no other way to execute the strategy. Uh, and it's sort of like again, that's, that's why I keep saying the price of admission is is, is having having mistakes. <laughs> How do you think of like one of the things when I think of momentum investing, which can be very powerful and you know using trend and being systematic, but like. It can also struggle during times of like regime change mm-hmm. and you have these flips where the market, you know, changes on you and one group or sector or asset class, you know, starts to decline and money starts to the flow start to go into somewhere else. And so the, the positive trend takes time to develop. And so you can get these like momentum crashes and then this kind of whipsawing effect, too, that, you know, you have to chase those back in. So. Do the bands, I guess, help in, in that to some extent? Or how do you kind of think about that with regime chains and markets? Yeah, no, it's certainly a risk for trend following. And we've seen that um, if you're if any of your listeners um, follow managed futures, you know, they, they do struggle when things are go- now they, they go short. So it's kind of more uh, exacerbated when you go short. Um, but anything that's sort of trending sideways with high volatility is going to be problematic for uh, a strategy like ours. Uh, for the most part, that doesn't happen. But it, when it does, it, it does cost us uh, some performance. One of the things we try to do in order to um, mitigate that, as I mentioned, you know, we have those bands that are offset by volatility, short-term exponential moving average. We also have a, a longer moving average um, that is in place uh, and was you know, part of the process early on when the founders realized, you know, sort of the risk is you get these double bottoms or bear market rallies. So the the, um, the sort of check, if you will, for identifying an uptrend would be the requirement to cross that longer term moving average in order to make it, you know, sort of a more valid signal. So that's how we try to mitigate some of that risk. We can't eliminate it completely, but it is what we it is what we try to um, how we try to 
dampen the, the exposure to that sort of whipsaw? From our experience in managing money for investors, you know, we know that bad decisions can be made when they lose a lot of money. Maybe they lose more than the market. They have these large drawdowns that you guys are trying to protect from. But it seems like, too, with you, you're doing a good job protecting on the downside, but there might be periods where when the market's ripping, just because you're more conservatively positioned, you know, you're trailing the market. And so that can also be potentially for some investors difficult to accept. And so, you know, what you don't want to have happen is those investors that are invested with you making bad decisions after a period of maybe un slight underperformance from strategies like like more conservative strategies. So how do you I guess, is it just all about investor education and making sure that you're reminding those investors that, you know, we are here to fulfill the more conservative part of your investment strategy. And when bad times come, you know, these strategies should do this. And so it's an educational piece of it. I'm just wondering in terms of managing expectations. And when you go through an environment like that, how you actually make sure that you keep your investors on the bus with you. Yeah, I think it is, it is as you said, education and really being transparent about what we do, who we are and who we're not. Uh, upside uh, capture is going to be limited because we're typically not going to get in it at the bottom. We're going to miss some of the early gains, but if the trend continues, we'll participate as long as, until that trend, you know, ends up in a in a sell signal. And I think that separates us a little bit. If you think about some of the option strategies that are out there, um, they sort of sell upside, and um, you know, for downside protection, we have a different take on it. I don't think we will. We'll certainly not outperform. Uh, equity, whatever asset class we're in, and, and an uptrend will probably trail to some degree. But what we like to try to explain to people is what we're introducing is asymmetry in terms of downside versus upside capture. So we may only capture 80% of the upside, but if we can only if we can do 40 or 50% of the downside, that that will make up up for it over time, and you know with the lower volatility. So you know if you're just judging us on you know, one market environment, you know, there are, it's definitely going to be binary. We'll either look like geniuses or, uh, you know, we'll, we'll look like uh, laggards, you know. So, but it comes down to that conversation that we have with our clients to say, this is what we do. This is why we do it. And, you know, explaining the why, frankly, is really important because you have to, you know, explain to clients that, they are, you know, when we, we you know, you want to be as, as respectful as you can, but you say, look, we're all humans. We, we do things uh, that could be damaging to our portfolio success because we can't handle things emotionally. And there's no free lunch. We have to give up something to get something. So we're just trying to rebalance, you know, and manage the risks in order to achieve your goals. I love that, explaining the why. That's very important. Um, most of our audience wouldn't know that Jim did do a mile sprint uh, to get to this podcast in 95 degree weather. So we really appreciate the running, Jim. James. So That's awesome. Yeah. Um, so in closing, we'd just like to uh, ask all of our guests one last closing question, which is based on your experience in the markets, if you could teach one lesson to your average investor, what would that be? So I, I you know, I started my career uh, working on a team of financial advisors, and prior to joining Sierra, I was I was leading up an investment strategy for a, a bank, uh, private bank on the West Coast. And I got the opportunity to really interact with clients. 
uh, and, and see, you know, how they react to certain things. Um, and I, I understand, like, for, from my perspective, like, one of the big weaknesses of, of individual investors is they really don't do a deep dive on their risk appetite. Um, it, it, it sounds obvious, really, that they should be doing that. Um, but they often don't realize what their pain points are before it's too late. Um, and that leads to what we call unrecoverable losses. They capitulate, right? And so there's kind of two dimensions to that. There's the, you know, your ability and willingness um, to assume risk. So I think of your ability to assume risk as sort of your, um, I would call it your, your financial risk tolerance. So I think about that as meeting your financial plan. And then there's your emotional risk tolerance, which is more your, your ability to sleep at night. So if my portfolio drops, it may not derail my financial plan, but I just can't take it anymore and I'm going to get out. And I think this is really important uh, for investors to understand and probably one of the best, case, best uh, uh, value adds any advisor can bring to the table for a client, which is you know, really understand with un- explaining the full range of outcomes that are associated with any investment strategy and understand like if this happens this worst case scenario you know we don't want to live in that space but it might happen and you might might encounter that but does that derail your financial plan does that cause you to you know just tap out and you know those so i think for you know maybe somebody can do it on their own and and be honest with themselves but the financial advisor can be a sounding board uh, and, and and an educator in terms of the range of outcomes that anyone can expect for a portfolio, uh, and really t- stress testing that with them is is really important. So I think just, again, deep dive, take a deep dive on risk tolerance, because if you can't hold on to your portfolio through thick and thin, it, it's going to be a failure. So that, that would be my advice to the average investor. Good stuff, James. Thank you very much for joining us. We appreciate it. Thanks, guys. Great, great to be here. This is Justin again. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of Excess Returns. You can follow Jack on Twitter at, at @practicalquant and follow me on Twitter at, at JJ Carboneau. If you found this discussion interesting and valuable, please subscribe in either iTunes or on YouTube or leave a review or a comment. We appreciate it. Justin Carboneau and Jack Forehand are principals at Validia Capital Management. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Validia Capital. No information on this podcast should be construed as investment advice. Securities discussed in the podcast may be holdings of clients of Validia Capital.